Miller's experiment took some simple chemicals like those found on early Earth, bubbled them up through a tube, zapped them with electricity, and after a few days floating in this soup, he found amino acids, the building blocks of proteins and one of the essential ingredients for life. This idea that life's origins could be found in a puddle of chemicals is an old one. In the 1920s, two different scientists theorized about life coming from what they called a prebiotic soup. And this soupy speculation even goes back, unsurprisingly, to Charles Darwin, who in 1871 wondered if life may have formed from chemicals in some warm little pond. What made Miller's experiment so special was it gave us proof regular non-life stuff could become cool life stuff super easily. It is so wrong. I mean, it is so wrong. I just <clears throat> just uh, finished uh, working with a man who, who did a survey of about 750 people, and uh, uh, 70, 77% of them uh, got felt either that scientists had created simple life <clears throat> like a bacterium in a laboratory using chemicals that are presumed uh, 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 would be abundant on an er early earth, or they felt that scientists have even made simple, uh, 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 made complex organisms like a frog using those chemicals, and 80% of the people surveyed were had uh, some, some college education between an associate's degree and a PhD. So, so the world is just thoroughly confused on this thing, and it's taught wrongly, not just in middle schools, not just in high schools, but even in the universities, and surely by the, the, the media. So they're just, they're just flat out wrong. My name is James Tour, and you're watching End Time Productions. Okay, my name is James Tour. Uh, I'm a synthetic organic chemist. Uh, I've been working in the field of organic chemistry for many decades. I've been a professor of organic chemistry for almost 33 years now, uh, so that's, that's a fair amount of time. <clears throat> I've published over 700 papers in the area of synthetic chemistry, uh, uh, and, and uh, some people view me as being one of the top producing chemists in the world uh, alive today. So, so that, that would sort of make me uh, able to speak about this. Now, people would say, uh, uh, what do you know about origin of life? Well, I've studied it. I've looked at it. I've writ written several articles on critiquing origin of life. <clears throat> but origin of life is pre-biology. Origin of life is before life forms. So before you have that first cell, that's when biochemistry takes over. But before that, it's just pure chemistry. There is no biochemistry. There's no biochemistry there. And so, so it's purely chemistry. And this is an area that synthetic chemists are the best able to critique and analyze. And that's what I am, a synthetic chemist. We work with molecules all day. You, you get a, a feel for what molecules can and cannot do. And, uh, and then you, you, you start critiquing it. And so that's what I've been doing is, is critiquing some of the areas of origin of life because I felt that there was so much that was talked about that was overblown and hyped and just simply not true. And people were believing many things that weren't true. They're not facts. And I think that one of the reasons that it's so deeply embedded is because of the origin of life researchers themselves. They will do something small in a laboratory 
and then they will build it up as if it's some great, great discovery which des describes the origin of life. And that's simply untrue. And then when they speak with the press, they ramp it up even more and it just gets carried away. And I, I have press articles that, that just say things that are utterly ridiculous based on the work that it's actually citing. And the origin of life researchers themselves don't stop this from happening. And now I have worked with the press and scientists. Sometimes the press gets carried away and says a lot of things that aren't true. But there's many times, I would say 80% of the time, you get a chance to critique what they've written and you could easily call them back and pull them back on this thing. So it starts with the origin of life researchers themselves. This is then taught and people get this idea, and the problem is also in the academy. It's not merely for origin of life researchers uh, uh, doing this, it, it just, it, and for high schools, it just pulls right up into the academy that even in universities this is taught. And biologists have a really warped idea on origin of life, thinking so much more has been done than has really been done, because they don't understand the chemistry, nor have they ever critiqued it themselves. This is what origin of life researchers do. They will take some chemicals that they actually buy. So they, they, they'll buy some DNA and some RNA and they'll put it in a vesicle, which is a, a, a self-assembly of a lipid bilayer. And, and they'll say that this is a protocell. This is something akin to a cell that given enough time would evolve into something that is a cell. And I say that's utter nonsense. It never would. It will never do that. And any synthetic chemist that looked at this would see that that would never, ever happen. And so it is very much like thinking that you can just buy turkey broth and, and uh, add, in, <clears throat> add in some, you know, sliced turkey meat and some feathers and warm it up and thinking that a turkey is going to come out. We know that that's ridiculous. The chemist looks at these protocell experiments exactly the same way. It's ridiculous. Life is not going to start that way. There's much too much complexity. It would be like taking a car and, and uh, uh, just taking the, 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 uh, the chassis of a car and we'll give it the doors and the windows and everything and then just shoving all the parts of the car into that and thinking that that car is going to start running. It won't. The parts have to go together in a certain way. And, and uh, these things don't just happen over time. And the parts would decompose long before anything ever got functioning. So this is what it's like. So the thing here is that, that uh, a cell is exceedingly complex. And the target that we're going after in a cell, it's much more complex than it used to be because we're understanding more of the complexity of the cell. So what happens is if you fly over New York City in a jet, at 30,000 feet and you look down, you might see a few buildings and you might see a few checkerboard uh, sort of pattern where the roads, but you have no idea of the complexity until you get down and you start walking around in that city and you see all the complexities going on. And then you, you get in, in some of the tunnels underneath the city and, and go, go down uh, uh, one of those man pipes and see, see what's under there and all the infrastructure and what's needed in the electrical, in the sewage, in the water systems to keep this city running. 
It's like that with a cell. The more you probe into a cell, the more you see the complexity. It is so complex. It is not just a bunch of protoplasm any more than you could take just bricks and sticks and mortar and dump them on Manhattan Island and think that that will somehow assemble a city. It's not going to happen that way. And that's exactly what it is with a cell. And a cell is more complex than, than a city. The, the degree of, of uh, connectedness and interconnectedness in a cell is huge. Uh, um, the numbers are just utterly staggering, even for the non-covalent. The non-covalent, that means the non-carbon-carbon bonds, just the electrostatic interactions, just the forces between the molecules and the order that's needed for those forces. And that's why if you take a cell and you were to dehydrate it, and even remove the, removing the structural water units, you could never rehydrate it and get that cell working again. Because once you've taken out that water that sits in there, that hydrogen bonds, that causes all these things to be in the right arrangement, it will never reassemble. Certainly you could go in and, and people have done this. They've knocked out certain genes and then the cell keeps functioning. It functions poorly, but it, it can still function. You can, you can damage certain things in there and it will still function. It's much like the human body. I mean, you can chop off an arm and the person can still be walking around and be alive. They won't function as well as they, they had if, if they had their two arms, but they could still function. You could go in and crush a leg and uh, uh, it, it, they would still function. You could go in and remove a kidney and it would still function. So it depends on what you, what you need to pull out, but that term, was introduced by, I believe, by Michael Behe when he wrote, originally wrote Darwin's Black Box. But what he was suggesting is absolutely right in that as a, if you think of the evolution of a cell, if you would think about the, the, uh, the origin of life coming into to form a cell, you would have to have many concerted lines, meaning functioning, moving at the same time at, uh, uh, toward each other, because you couldn't just bring in one line and get this cell operating. You have to have many things happening at the same time in order to, for there to be functioning. And so you have to have many operations happening at once. So it's not just one line of evolution occurring. You'd have to have many of them occurring for for he was speaking in the context of, of evolution. He was speaking in the context of life yielding more complex life. You'd have to have several portions running concertedly. That's what he's speaking about when he spoke of irreducible complexity. But it's certainly the same with, with, a, with a cell. You can't have a cell operating with, without its four basic classes of chemicals. You've got to have proteins. You have to have the, the uh, uh, polysaccharides or the carbohydrates. And, and then you, you've got to have the nucleic acids, uh, uh, the DNA uh, and RNA. Uh, and then, and then uh, you've got to have the lipids, uh, which, which make the membranes around things. <clears throat> and, and some people think, oh, well, the lipids are easy to form. Those, those are just, no, they're not easy to form. We've never even seen a cell operating with, with, uh, uh, with 
just a random assembly of, of, of racemic, meaning uh, not homochiral lipids. Uh, we've never seen that before. Some people have suggested you could just take any old fatty acid and make a bilayer membrane and that would function as a cell. No. There, there's recent work that shows that, that those could never maintain the proton gradients. So you have to have all those four classes of chemicals. Not only do we not know how to make those four classes of chemicals using a prebiotically relevant root, by that I mean using a root that would have been available on a prebiotic earth, using the compounds and the chemicals available on a prebiotic earth, using just those compounds available on a prebiotic earth, we don't know how to make those four classes of compounds. But it's, it's harder than that. We don't even know how to make the building blocks of those building blocks. So in other words, to make a polysaccharide, you have to have you have to have the the monosaccharides you have to have the monomeric sugars we don't know how to make monomeric sugars in homochiral form using prebiotic what would have been available on a prebiotic earth we don't know how to make the the uh, uh the nucleic acids uh so so the nucleotides that are needed for the nucleic acids because there you have to have the sugar you have to have the sugar moiety and those have never been made in homochiral form uh, even the, the lipids, for the lipids you have to be able to have a, a, uh, a glycerol moiety, which itself is not chiral, but the two hydroxymethyl groups, uh, uh, those are what are called enantiotopic. So as soon as you select one of them, then it becomes a chiral molecule. We don't know how that was done with lipids to make those in homochiral form. And the amino acids. We've only been able to make a racemic amino acids using what might have been available on prebiotic earth. You have to have the homochiral amino acids, number one. Number two, we don't know how to get those to hook together in water in an aqueous environment because those are dehydration reactions. So I know I've just discussed a bunch of chemistry and people are going to go to sleep. But what's happening here is that not only do we not know how to make the building blocks for a cell, but we don't know how to make the building blocks of the building blocks in any prebiotically relevant manner. And then on top of that, let me just throw this out. Even if I gave anyone, I don't care who it is, anyone, the DNA, all the DNA that they wanted, all the RNA that they wanted, in homochiral form where I extracted that from a living system, and the lipids that they wanted, uh, and, and, and gave them all the sugars that they wanted hooked together as they would like. Even if I gave that to them, they wouldn't know how to disassemble that into a living cell. And if anybody, anybody argues with this, they say, well, why hasn't anybody done that? Why hasn't anybody done that? There's a Nobel Prize just for doing that. Even if you just bought all those reagents and assembled them in your modern laboratory into a working cell, you'd get a Nobel Prize. Why doesn't anybody do it? Because we don't know how to do it. Because the interconnectedness that goes into that package of a cell is utterly amazing. Just putting them in there is putting in there the, the, uh, the turkey meat and the broth and, 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 and just warming it up. That doesn't do anything. The turkey doesn't come out of that. That's the problem. So organisms try to stay alive. They're what are called a non-equilibrium system and they work very hard to maintain that non-equilibrium state to, to be alive. In fact, it's even very hard to, under, to, to explain what life is. What is life? Is it just an ionic potential? Is this non-equilibrium state? What is it that, that life is? 
And uh, uh, if you have a cell that just dies, just to describe what it is you just lost, what is it? Uh, uh, life is, is really utterly amazing, and it's not easy even to define. But in any case, I digress, that, that uh, organisms care about life. They want to try to stay alive. Molecules are not alive. Molecules have never been shown to move toward life. People will say, well, what about the lipid bilayer? That's a self-assembly, a thermodynamic self-assembly. That is. But the lipid bilayer that you get just by making a normal vesicle is not like the lipid bilayer that you have either in a cell or even more complex in a bacterium. People will say, I speak about eukaryotic cells, like human cells, and those are really complex. You ought to be speaking about a bacterium. Okay, you want to talk about a bacterium? Those have even more complex bilayers. Those have more complex cell walls, not just a cell membrane. They usually have a peptido, uh, 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 a peptido uh, glycan layer, so it's a peptide covered with sugars. Molecules don't move toward life. So this whole thing of chemical evolution is a misnomer. They don't move toward life. Now a chemist, a chemist can put those together in a certain way, but that's a biological entity like a human being working on them. But by themselves, chemicals do not move toward life. They don't move toward the ordering of life. They never have known, been known to do that. They never have done that by anything that we can see. So molecules don't know to move toward life. They don't have a brain. They don't know where they're going. They don't move toward life. That's like saying that uh, uh, if, you, if you pour sand on the floor in your office, sand, that given enough time, those will self-assemble into a silicon computer chip because sand is made out of silicon. And so those are going to self... No, sand doesn't move toward silicon chips. It just doesn't. It sits on the beach forever. Molecules do the same thing. They just, they just sit there. They don't move toward life. Well, for origin of life research, you don't start with the chemicals that you can buy from a chemical company. You have to start with very simple chemi chemicals. Nitrogen, methane, sulfate, uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen cyanide. Very few researchers will start from those. Now, for those who do start from those, you get very simple things, but those simple compounds have always been shown to be racemic, meaning that you get the left-handed and the right-handed version of it, and that's not what biologically oriented molecules are. People will say, some people will say, well, the chemicals came here from outer space. Well, that just begs the question. That just defers the question to some of the place. Where did it form before that? We're talking about origin of first life. And even with that, the chemicals that come from space are predominantly racemic themselves. So they're not of what appears to us to be of any biological origin. When you have the two-handedness of chemicals, they're not there. So they deal generally with achiral materials, or, or, I'm sorry, racemic materials, things that, that uh, you have both the left-handed or right-handed. That's the things that they will make. And, and uh, we haven't improved at all since Miller-Urey when they'd had that experiment where they put a high voltage and some of these basic chemicals around it and they got some amino acids, but those amino acids were all, a, were all racemic. And plus, getting those hooked together, we've never figured out how to get those hooked together. And lots of the amino acids have active side chains that would have to be protected before you can put these things together. And to put these things together, you gotta, you gotta use, use aqueous conditions because there was no oil around. Remember, oil is believed to be a product of, of, uh, of 
of biology, which hasn't started yet. So you only have methane. And people will say, well, fatty acids form spontaneously. That's a bunch of garbage. Molecules don't just form spontaneously like that. Show me how a fatty acid, show me the mechanism of a spontaneous, spontaneous formation. It's not known. It's not known. And that's why, you know, people will start with the fatty acid as if that was just sitting around. So you have to start there. And then they don't, and then they'll buy the chemicals. So they'll buy the chemicals and say, well, somebody made this in a prebiotically relevant way. And so I'm just buying it to, to ease my getting it. No, you've now bought it in homochiral form, number one. Number two, you've bought it very clean. Theirs was a little blip. They got that mixed in with 20 or 30 other products. It never would have been usable in that form. But they'll say, well, somehow, Early Earth figured that out. Tell me, how would an early Earth figure that out? You yourself couldn't even use that compound. It's so impure. But you, you, will, you will just put upon an early Earth to do that, and you won't even try to lift that with your little finger because you can't? And so, so uh, 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 but then they'll, 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 and they'll make, a lot, a lot of it is they'll make protocells, they'll make a lipid bilayer. Okay, you get a lipid bilayer, and they'll fill it up with stuff, and they'll say, look, chemistry can take place. You put the things in there to do some chemistry. It's not life. Or they'll, they'll take a lipid bilayer, and they will buy DNA. They will buy RNA. They'll buy RNA, and they'll, they'll buy the enzymes, and they'll put in there the reagents for protein synthesis. Well, protein synthesis will take place. If you buy RNA and you buy amino acids in homochiral form, and you put those things together, yes, you can start getting protein synthesis. That happens in a test tube. You bought all of the reagents to do this, so now you put in a lipid bilayer. That's not life. That's just protein synthesis. That's nowhere near life. That's not making any life. People will say, well, if you have RNA, it can start duplicating itself. Well, that's, that's, that's a real stretch too because they've taken RNAs and they only duplicate about 7 or 8% of themselves. They don't duplicate the whole, whole thing. And whatever they duplicate, the error rate is generally quite high, well over 1%, which is high when you're talking about what's needed for a duplication rate when you don't have, and, and especially when you don't have any selectors to pull those things out. There are no selectors in a prebiotic earth. And then, and then those RNAs that have been made were too short to duplicate themselves. So all of this is a bunch of fictitious nonsense. And we're talking about the best people in the world working with RNA that has been specifically designed to try to duplicate itself. And they'll prime it, meaning they'll set the thing up to try to duplicate them themselves. And it can only duplicate about 10%. So this whole idea that of this RNA world hypothesis that all you needed was a little bit of RNA and the whole thing got going, that is a bunch of nonsense. So in 1952, I, I don't think Miller and Urey claimed that they had created life, but, they, but everybody thought. They saw that experiment, which is a great experiment. I mean, I, I don't mean to knock the experiment to be able to put this uh, voltage across a bunch of chemicals and you get amino acids, which are stable structures, and you got a lot of amino, different types of amino acids out of that reaction. But that was a great experiment, and we still continue to do the same thing. We take chemicals, we make a barrage of stereoscrambled compounds. That means the racemic materials, things that are racemic, things, things that are mixtures, and 
and uh, those continue, th those aren't useful for anything, just like Miller-Urey's compounds weren't useful for, for anything. Now people will say, oh, these can, these can uh, self-purify by crystallization. Only a few of them can self-purify by crystallization. The vast majority do not. Some of the ones that do can have others crystallizing on their surface, but the yields are exceedingly low, much less than 1%, and the EEs, the enantiomeric excesses, the degree of, of homochirality in that is very, very low, being totally unuseful. And I know this very well because I've gone through the papers in utter detail showing this. And, and, uh, um, and so, so we, what's happening is people are still making these barrage of, of racemic materials. Now, if they buy their compounds, they will show a little experiment where they say that, okay, we could have done this and we could have gotten the assembly of certain compounds from this, but that never would have allowed us to, to do this chemistry. The, the, they show that, for example, they make a lipid. They make a lipid using chemistry that they say might have been available on prebiotic earth, only when you bought the building blocks to do that. And so now you got that 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 uh, that lipid that so so you get this this uh, um, this phosphate group this lipid with this ethanolamine group on there. Now what? Now what are you going to do with this? Because a lipid bilayer is very different. A lipid bilayer now has to have the inner and the outer membrane being different. Nobody has ever done that. So we're still trying to make little compounds. The only way we have homochirality on these things is if we buy it and people will say, no, these things can happen on chiral surfaces, on, on rocks. Show me, the, show me the EEs, the enantiomeric excesses on those chiral surfaces. Show me the references for that. Show me how that would have happened on a prebiotic earth. Show me the references for that. It's very, very difficult. We haven't moved. We're nowhere closer to a cell than we were in 1952. And in fact, we're further away for the very reasons that I talked about before. Because of the complexity of the cell, we thought was this complex. But now in the last 70 years, we know it's much, much more complex. So the goalpost has moved much further away from us. So we are less likely to solve this thing than we were, in, than we were thinking in 1952, because it's much, much further away. How do they address their, their inadequacy to make homochiral compounds? They just say, well, we can't, and, and they bypass that. How do, it, how do they address the mass transfer problem? Meaning that if you're moving down a synthesis and something is getting good, and now you run out of starting material, how do you bring through more? They don't address this. Some people will claim, oh, just more is constantly being made. Constantly being made? That means all the other ones are constantly being made too. And you get some, say you get some beginnings of a codon in, 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 a, in a DNA, and then that thing decomposes, you think you get the same arrangement that you had before? Say you get the same amino acid sequence that just happens to form. Do you think you get the same amino acid sequence again? Not when you're, you're not when it's 10 to the 40th or 10 to the 50th, one in 10 to the 50th chance that you're going to get it. So they avoid these hard questions. That's a one with 50 zeros after it. That is essentially infinitely impossible. Once you get it to numbers like that, even if you're talking about a, a 4.2 billion years for the Earth, uh, uh, or 3.8 billion years since the Earth cooled when you could start having chemistry take place, uh, uh, that would be way, way too little time for this to be able to happen. 
so the, there, there's something called interactomes. That's that non-covalent interaction between, between the molecules. These numbers have been calculated not by me, but by biophysicists. Just the interactomes in a simple cell, like a yeast cell, just the protein-protein, so we're not talking about protein-carbohydrate or carbohydrate-DNA, uh, uh, just protein-protein interactions, the non-covalent interactions that have to have ordering for life, is, is uh, 10 to the 79 billion power. That is a one with 79 billion zeros after it. That is way more than all the elemental particles in the universe. If you were to add up all the elemental particles in the universe, and you say, well, by elemental particles, do you mean atoms? I could mean that. I don't care if you want to just say it's not just atoms, it's all the protons, neutrons, and electrons. Because the difference between an atom and the number of protons, neutrons, and electrons is, is only a factor of, say, 100 or 200. We're talking one in, in, we're talking 10 to the 79 billion. The number of elemental particles in the universe is 10 to the 90, a one with 90 zeros. This is a one with 79 billion zeros after it. This is, this is a crazy, crazy big number. This is a crazy big number. If you have a 10 to the 23, if you had one mole of paper, 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper, which is the same number of water molecules that you swallow in one swallow of water, if you, have, if you had 10 to the, 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper, that stack of paper, just stacked up, would reach from the earth to the sun, not just once, but 400 million times. So you would have 400 million stacks of paper from the earth to the sun if you had 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper. Remember, the number of elemental particles in the universe is not 6 to the 23rd power, but 6 to the 90th power. The numbers that I'm talking about for ordering of an interactome are 10 to the 79 billion power. You see, these are crazy big numbers. And uh, uh, that's why all the time in the universe, you're, you're, you're presumed 14.8 billion years or 13.8, 14 billion years. That's way, way too little for this thing to have happened. And that's why when a cell divides, what it does, it starts coming down and it takes this information of this ordering and it shares it between the two halves and divides. And that's why you had to have that first cell to transfer life, life, life to the other cells after it. This, this is a hard, hard problem. Origin of life is a hard problem. I think it's taught as facts because most people don't know the, know the difference between a fact and a theory. Most people don't know the difference. And so these things are, are talked about as facts. They hear some scientists talking about this and they think, wow, he or she really knows what they're talking about. But they don't. They just don't. There's so much that they don't know in this area. And, and, and I think most school teachers, I'm not coming against them, they just don't know. This is even taught as fact with, with professors. And, it, and it's not just origin of life, it moves right on into things of evolution of a complex system. I'm not talking about simple little things that you can do in a lab all the time. I'm talking about evolution of a complex changes. Uh, these are spoken about as fact all the time. I will hear biology professors say it is a fact. And I'm, I'm saying, well, what exactly is a fact? That, that evolution occurs when you talk about small changes in a test tube or in a bacterium? Yeah, for sure. 
but have you ever seen evolution of a complex system where one system becomes another? People say, oh, that's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? You have to have that over and over again if you're going to have evolution from single cells moving on upward to complex organisms. You have to have that all the time. Have you ever shown a mechanism by which that happens? And they get very angry with me. But I'm just asking them for the data. I'm just asking them for the data, something very simple that they ought to just provide. But they can't provide it because it's not there. A lot of times what happens is the, is the antibiotic will kill all the bacteria except for one or two that happen to be a little bit different than their neighbors, that they knew how to deal with this substrate. And then those one or two multiply, and you just get more and more and more of them. So those are adapting to what's there, and that is, that is the few that survived have now propagated more. You can get genetic changes. That can happen. You can get genetic changes. I mean, genetic changes happen to us. Many viruses that infect us uh, will do changes to our DNA. And, you know, I get a lot of people writing to me these days about, you know, can, can changes happen to our DNA with, with, with a virus or with an injection for a virus? This is what happens with viruses. Very often, they'll actually change the structure of our DNA. They'll do insertions. They do insertions right into our DNA. That is not unusual for a virus. And that's why our DNA is probably, I, I'm sure my DNA is different than when I was born. Your DNA is different than when you were born. You have these other things, these changes that, 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 that uh, come in uh, uh, based on what we're exposed to. You have epigenetics. You have these changes that occur in the DNA structure. Uh, uh, but this is not what we're talking about. You know, I don't, you, you know, we're, we, don't, we don't start getting these gross anatomical changes because of this. When you talk about changes in body plans, when you talk about a, a, uh, a, a whole system changing, that's very, very different where you, where you have to talk about these sorts of massive evolutionary things. You know, I can never disprove this. I can't disapprove, I can't disprove uh, uh, certain things on origin of life. I can't disprove certain things on evolution. I'm just saying, show me the evidence. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, I never push a God of the gaps hypothesis, meaning that the things that we can't explain must have been God. No, we get further understanding with time. This is normal. So if you took a, if you took a man in the, in the 19th century, so say in the 1800s, and you asked him, or you took a woman and you asked her, uh, why do children look like their parents? They wouldn't have known any. Well, you know, that's because that's their... their but why? What is that? Well, now we understand something of DNA. We understand how these things are passed on. So they didn't understand DNA. They didn't understand these, these, these things that, that work with heredity. But now we can explain that. So, so in... Who knows, in 500 years, we may have explanations for all of this. All I'm saying is that right now, on a lot of these matters, we are utterly clueless, utterly clueless. We just don't have the answers. And what I say, too, is that, is that you know, because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I strongly believe in him. Now, when I speak about the science, when I speak about science, I don't have to bring Jesus or the Bible into this at all. I'm just letting, everything I've said to you at this point is just letting science critique the science. But if, if I'm allowed to put on my other hat for an instant, instance and say, there is nothing in the Bible 
that has been contradicted by a, by a scientific fact. Nothing that's been contradicted in, in Nothing in the Bible has been contradicted by a scientific fact. There are lots of theories out there, and theories change all the time. Theories in science change all the time, and they change in recent history as well. So if you were a scientist prior to 1959, there's a good chance that you believed in the steady-state hypothesis that the universe has always been here. But then in the early 60s, due to cosmic microwave background radiation being recorded, we found out that the Big Bang, which had been, which had been uh, uh, re really pushed, re re really talked about in, in the early, early 20th century, really was, wasn't until the 1960s that it was embraced, where the universe had a definite beginning. So we know from the Bible the universe has not always existed. It had a definite beginning. That was then, then science morphed into what the Bible, in fact, teaches. If you were if you were a uh, 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 if you were a scientist um, prior to 1972 by the work of Eldridge and Gould, you would have thought that these small changes, like Darwin says, small changes were occurring gradually. Eldridge and Gould showed how there's nothing there's nothing like that in the fossil record. That changes occurred over short periods of time. And then and then there was there was just static and then short periods of time. Uh, what wiped out the dinosaurs? It was believed that climate change wiped out the dinosaurs. But then another theory came in that no, it was a, 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 a meteorite impact on the Yucatan Peninsula, an iridium-rich uh, 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 meteorite that hit, that threw up dirt and soil and, and particles into the air that obscured the sun, the plants died, the herbivores died then the carnivores died, and that's what wiped out the dinosaurs, it is believed. So you see, theories change all the time. Uh, uh, and, and so this happens all the time. So I'm not going to try to take my Bible and have it fit the latest scientific theory. The Bible stands. The scientific theories are changing all the time.